Well, we'll be back in First Thessalonians today. We'll see how much uh, we can get done today. And then uh, some of you may know, maybe you don't, but I guess I should officially announce. Uh, and there'll be some things in the bulletin for you. But uh, uh, I asked the uh, church and they consented. And uh, Lisa and I will be taking a five week uh, sabbatical. Uh, I will be here on Sunday, June the 4th. And then I will be gone for the next five Sundays. Uh, but you, is that Patty? I, I heard somebody say, woo, usually it's Patty uh, on Wednesday nights. You're never going to live that down. Okay, she's behaved. That doesn't mean you get to stay home, though. Sorry. We have some world-class speakers lined up for you. Uh, our four elders uh, plus Robert. Uh, they're going to fill in, so you don't want to miss that. So just watch the bullets. There'll be some things, but I wanted to get back. I debated whether to get back into Thessalonians, but I didn't want to wait 10 weeks. That would be just way too long. Uh, and uh, there's some outlines back here. If you need one, raise your hand. Uh, there's going to be quite a bit of information today, uh, but it shouldn't take um, as long as it usually does to get through it. But I wanted you to have some things Especially on the front of the bulletin, it's more devotional. There's some things for you to look at this week, some things to go over and meditate upon from God's word uh, for you to take home with you uh, to think about. You know, uh, if you look at First uh, Thessalonians chapter two, starting in verse 14, uh, we read earlier from Deuteronomy 32 a lot about God's wrath, his vengeance, his judgment. Uh, not popular topics today. Uh, you know, you're not going to see those things on Christian T-shirts or uh, really a lot of Christian radio or media other either. And there's a reason for that. And that's one of the things I wanted to share with you this morning is why is that? Uh, why is that the case? Especially I want us to focus our attention on what's going on in the American church and in the life of the American Christian uh, and really how. Uh, it seems like uh, the American church has created a radically undemanding God. Uh, has, it's like the church has removed God's teeth and all we have is an ineffective grandfather uh, who just affirms us and tolerates everything that we do and say. And that is not the God of the Bible. Uh, and God and Christianity in America have been radically transformed into something uh, that you're not going to find in the Bible. Uh, and just topic of wrath kind of brought all that to mind. And then God brought some uh, things across my desk this week. But chapter two of First Thessalonians, starting in verse 14, says for you, brethren, in Thessalonica, uh, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus uh, that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. The Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Now, Paul really making a change here between verses 14 and 15. It's it's almost like we're thinking, wow, he's really turning on these people uh, or against them. Uh, but this is inspired scripture. So we have to look closely at this uh, and uh, killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Uh, they are not pleasing to God. Uh, because in their zeal, the Jews thought that they were doing a very good thing for God by uh, persecuting Christ followers. But they are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles may be saved. 
with the result for these Jewish unbelievers that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Uh, Not really something that we would often stop these days to look at, but I do want us to stop uh, for a moment and look at what's going on here uh, with God's wrath. First of all, let's get a definition. And you see that on letter E of your outline. Ta-da, there's been a miracle. We're on letter E already. Uh, And you're like, praise the Lord. I love a good miracle. Okay. Here's a good definition. Uh, It's kind of a mixture from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book, which is a great basic text that you should have on your Christian bookshelf at home. Uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology. Uh, I kind of mixed it with... uh, some from John MacArthur's new release. Uh, he just recently released a thick uh, book called Biblical Theology. It also is really good. But they define God's wrath as this. God intensely hates all sin and is obliged by his holy nature to judge and punish all sin. Let's read that together one more time. Let's read it together out loud. God intensely hates all sin and is obliged by his holy nature to judge and punish all sin. Now, we're uncomfortable. Many of us are uncomfortable with talking about God's wrath or about judgment Uh, Or about God's vengeance. We have a hard time because in our culture today, we really emphasize and focus on God's love. You know, and we're told uh, the Old Testament presents a God of wrath. The New Testament presents a God of love. Pop quiz, true or false? False. If you've already looked at your outline, the answer is right there on letter B. That's false. You'll find God's wrath as much mentioned and taught in the New Testament as in the Old Uh, It's just in our culture of gentleness, our culture of an undemanding God, uh, the wrath is removed from the cross. And they think that all we have left is love. But look at uh, the quote I put on your outline from Grudem. I thought it was excellent. If God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God's wrath directed against sin is closely related to his holiness and justice. This is an attribute or a quality of God's character for which we should thank and praise God. It may not immediately appear to us how we can do this, how we can praise God for his wrath, since wrath seems to be such a negative concept. And and you notice in our culture today, it's very out of vogue to be negative about anything. Negative in the sense of... Uh, contradicting someone's uh, theological belief or challenging someone's ethical, moral or or spiritual conviction uh, or saying, you know, I'm not sure. But I think the Bible says, you know, that's very unpopular uh, because we're supposed to be affirming each person's truth. Uh, if I hear one more time. Uh, Oprah Winfrey say, yes, you've got to go after your truth. You know, uh, each person has his own individual truth and we're not allowed to uh, discern or critique or confront that, uh, which is a very damning thing to do. So 
it's a negative concept to think about God's wrath. Viewed alone, if we view God's wrath just by itself, it would only arouse fear and dread. But we view it in light of his love also. Yet it is helpful for us to ask what God would be like if he were a God that did not hate sin. In other words, do we really want to worship a God who does not hate sin? What kind of God would he be if he didn't hate sin with all of his being? He would then be a God who either delighted in sin or at least was not troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship for sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. It is, in fact, a virtue to hate evil and sin. Now, to hate evil and to hate sin, not to hate people. And we rightly imitate this attribute of God when we feel hatred against great evil, injustice and sin. But that's really not where we're at in the American church. That's not where we're at in American Christianity. Uh, we uh, are not uh, popular to speak out and to speak against uh, this undemanding God that has been created in people's minds. Uh, and when we say uh, this new American religion, this was an article, uh, an online blog article written by Dr. Albert Moeller of the Southern Seminary in Louisville. Uh, it's just a little four page article, but it was excellent. Uh, and he uh, picked up on uh, a research project uh, that was done uh, by a couple of social scientists. And uh, the, their piece is called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Eyes of American Teenagers. There you go. So we're going to knock around the teenagers just for a little bit this morning. I don't know if I see any. You're not a teenager anymore, are you? You're 20. Are you 20? Oh, you're not 20 yet. Okay, Daniel, we're going to knock you around. Katie, are you 13 yet? You're safe. Okay. I'm not saying. Christian, aren't you like 16? No? Okay. I guess everyone's safe in here. Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Eyes of American Teenagers. Uh, and these two authors say that the new religion of American Christians would be called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, we're going to explain that. And you may start, you may be thinking in your head, you got to hang with me on this. Now, this isn't an organized religion. That's not what they're saying. You're not going to look in the yellow pages for a church and say, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the first church of moralistic therapeutic deism this morning. It's on the corner. of so that's not what they're saying. It's not a denomination. They're saying it's the cultural mindset. It's the world view. This is how most Christians and non-Christians in America today are thinking about religion, about God, about Christ, about doctrine. This has been formulated through our culture. Uh, but these two authors uh, did research interviews, spent a lot of time with over 3,000 teenagers just to gauge their opinions. And they concluded that the, the worldview that these teenagers had really was in large part because they didn't have the parental influence in their lives that they should have. Uh, in fact, they say that they recorded that for uh, more than half of these teenagers talking to the researcher was the first time they'd ever had a theological conversation with an adult. Yikes. So... The beliefs of these teenagers in this research project project really reflect the parenting uh, and reflect the American church. 
I think I gave you some space to define these terms, and I've rambled enough for you to write some things down. Uh, but as we talk about this, you also, uh, letter A on your second page, in your own words, describe this new American religion. We're going to talk about some of those things. But uh, what are they saying exactly? Uh, well, they say the core beliefs, the core beliefs of this type of thinking that we see in America involve these kinds of things. Uh, that God exists, uh, that he is a creator, he does watch over human life, but God is there He because he wants people to be good, he wants them to be nice, he wants them to be fair, because that's what's taught in the Bible, and that's really what most world religions teach. Moralistic, we're talking about being good, believing that good people go to heaven, or really, it is Uh, My role as a Christian is to be a good person. That's what it means to be moralistic. Well, they take it a little bit farther and they say this type of thinking promotes that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life except if I need him to solve a problem. And it's good people that go to heaven. So the therapeutic part comes in because our culture really is promoting and they've bought in hook, line and sinker that the most important pursuit of my life, the goal of my life is to be happy. How many times have you heard that? I just want him to be happy or I just want her to be happy. Now, before you heat up the tar and start plucking the feathers and getting ready to take me out, we're going to talk about this more. So you're thinking what? I'm a Christian, so I'm supposed to just mope around all the time and just hate myself. Oh, I hate myself. I hate myself. That's not what I'm saying. And we'll see in a moment. Uh, if we can keep the Lord of the Flies away from my head. But this is the thing. You know it's true, right? We see it uh, all around us. And by the way, and you already know this, but since I'm already up on soapbox, uh, there is a... Just a militant secularism that is just being shoved on our children in the schools. Uh, In other words, uh, grade school, middle school, high school, college campuses especially, that uh, there is really no absolute right or wrong because each person has his own standard. And how dare you tell me that my standard of right and wrong is not right. And that... Uh, there's room for every view except the view that says there's absolute truth. Uh, And that only views and opinions that are not connected to any supernatural context are legitimate. It's a naturalism is what they would call it, which naturalism is the opposite of what? Supernaturalism. Your heads are spinning already. You're like, you lost me back there. Are you a naturalist as a Christian or are you a supernaturalist? You don't know, do you? You're a supernaturalist. Don't you believe in a divine being called God and that Jesus came from heaven as the perfect sinless lamb of God? Don't you believe that in six literal 24 hours God created the heavens and the earth and then he created man? You believe all that, right? You're a supernaturalist then. And you're really on the outs. You're very unpopular. So just to let you know. Your aces with me, but out there, they don't really care much for you. Try bringing up some of that stuff in the workplace or at school or something and, and just see what happens. But what is interesting, I even talked to someone here this morning. Uh, people 
If they know you're a Christian, if they know you believe in the Bible, if they know that you claim to be a Jesus follower, who do they come to when there's a problem or a crisis or if they need prayer? So you just keep on keeping on. We'll see. It's really a form of what we call relativism, isn't it? Which means what? It just means whatever. It's just kind of like a whatever mindset, whatever works for you. Uh, whatever is good for you, whatever's just fine. Uh, ethical truth depends upon the person holding those truths. In other words, individualism is king in our culture today. Do you know what John seventeen seventeen says? You should know this verse. Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Uh, and as I pointed out on Wednesday night, that's important. That verse when Jesus says. Thy word is truth. He's talking to his heavenly father. The word truth there is not an adjective. He's not saying thy word is true. That word truth is a noun. Thy word is the ultimate standard of what is right. Anything that claims to be truth must be compared to your word. Because your word is truth. Because God is truth. And, you know, that's why the psalmist says God hates lying lips because God is a God of truth. It's an affront to him, which, by the way, I think is the very first verse we ever had our children memorize. God hates lying lips. Uh, hey, they're precious. They're cute, but they're also liars. OK. And thieves sometimes. Right. With a little splash of selfish. Little bundles of joy. We had fun, didn't we? On Wednesday. Though he kept patting my bald head. He was like, I don't know. Um, I got tired of writing it out. MTD. This is what it's, this is the world we live in. You're thinking, why are you spending so much time? Because we have to know. Do you, we have to be like the tribe of Issachar. When they sent thousands of men to join up with David, you know, he lists all the tribes there. I think it's in Second Kings. Uh, and what was the tribe of Issachar known for? It said men of great discernment who understood what was going on in their time. And more than anyone else, folks, we should understand what's going on in our world, not just the events but why things are happening? What's causing this? Where is it going? Why do people think the way they think? There's nothing more important about a person than his worldview. Than his worldview. What is a worldview? A worldview is the grid through which I interpret everything in life. We, hopefully... You, I know I do, hopefully you, have a Christian biblical worldview. You interpret everything through the lens of Scripture. But folks, there are billions of people around the world who, if they don't view the world through a Christian worldview, what worldview do they have? How are they interpreting what's going on in the world, what's going on in their own hearts, their own minds, in their own lives? Without the Lord Jesus Christ, without scripture as a guide, what are they themselves themselves? Where, where else? Where else does someone have to turn if he turns away from God? He has to turn to himself. So in this type of thinking, people have very vague, limited religious views. And with a lot of Christians in America today, their religious views don't even agree with what the Bible says. Right. Right. 
Have you, have you ever talked or heard or or listened to someone who claims to be a Christian and then they say something or they espouse a belief and you're thinking, mm, wow, that's not quite what I remember the Bible saying. Uh, because we have an illiteracy problem in this nation, not the one you think. We have an illiteracy problem among Christians who don't know what the Bible really says. And many Christians don't even know what their own church believes or the doctrine that their church holds to. And the younger you are, the less you care about it, according to the studies that have been done. Anyway, just full of good news today. All right. There'll be some there'll be some good news. We'll turn those frowns upside down. OK. What about today? It's very popular to be non-judgmental, right? Non-judgmental. If I have a strong theological conviction, that's being judgmental. That's the culture that we live in. And what's one of the first doctrines to get the heave-ho? The wrath of God. And along with that, any talk of sin, uh, any talk of righteousness or holiness. Uh, To tell you the truth, if we... I don't think we have a complete gospel if we don't introduce the wrath of God before we introduce the love of God. Uh, we're trying to bring people into the kingdom by focusing only on the love of God with never a mention of the wrath of God. Now, the death of Christ on that cross was truly a sacrificial act of love, but he came to that point because the wrath of God had to be satisfied. The, the wrath of God necessitated the death of Christ. We'll see more about that in a minute. And and I think that's the best way. And I I love to be with Ron Muir when he's sharing the gospel and he's being used of God to bring someone to Christ. Because me, I like have a little talk. Have you accepted Christ? Oh, good. All right. You're saved. Let's go. Uh, Well, that's just the first step with him. They're going to spend a good hour with him because he's going to make sure that they're really saved. Uh, And I appreciate that. Uh, and, and I don't think that we can. Uh, I think that when we have this discussion of God's wrath and the need for a repentance because of sin, uh, I think that builds a deeper conviction and assurance of salvation than if we just glossed over it and go straight to the love of God. Well, the love of God is tremendous, but we have to understand why did I why do I need the love of God? I need the love of God because I'm a sinner. I'm the object of God's wrath, God's vengeance, God's judgment. The scriptures say that I'm hostile to God, that I'm an enemy of God if I am outside of Christ. Man, that's no way to live, is it? Mm. So what's going on? In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Mother, mother, mother. Okay, I like that song. Some of his other songs, not so much, but. American Christians then either do not really comprehend their own religious traditions or they do and they don't care. There's a vast emptiness at the heart of understanding. There's a lack of serious thinking. There's an absence of intentional faith among Christians today. Do you know what I mean by that? An intentional faith. I'm a Christian. This is what I believe. My convictions are based upon scripture. I can define and defend my beliefs, my convictions from scripture. It means that I'm a thinking person. I don't just 
fall backwards into the faith. Uh, and I don't just put it on cruise control, you know, and, and fly through life. Because what, is, what does uh, Peter's epistle, I think, tells us? What? That we should always be prepared to give a defense of the faith that we have. We have to understand and know our convictions. And mom and dad, it's your job to make sure your children understand Christianese. Do you know what Christianese is? We have this Christianese. We, we become comfortable. Oh, are you saved? Saved? Saved from what? I didn't know I was in, lost. Or what, what are you talking about? Well, have you experienced the grace of God? Grace? Is that your grandmother's name? What? I, don't under, I don't understand. Well, have you been justified, sanctified, glorified, washed in the blood? Whoa, dude, what are you talking about? But we throw those words around, right? And mom and dad, have you ever stopped with your kids and said and asked them, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be justified? Tell me what you know about grace. And hopefully little Johnny doesn't say, oh, she's a no. She's one of my best friends at school. No. But we have to make sure we know what we believe and we know why we believe it. It's really important in this age in which we live. The thinking today believes that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. Being nice, kind, pleasant, respectable, responsible, working on self-improvement and being successful. Religion in America today is centered in being nice, not having strong theological convictions. That's the mood of the American church today. Don't have strong theological convictions. Don't be a Bible thumper. Don't be a Jesus freak. Is really, I mean, a little bit is good, but let's not take it too far. I wear that as a badge because I know many of you have begun coming to church here since I arrived nine years ago. But what we hear in here again and again and again and again is what good sound teaching of the Bible. I had someone on Wednesday night tell me who's been here since before I got here. Say we had great teaching before you came, but then you came and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, that makes me think of that a little bit different, a little bit. I mean. We, we have to have strong theological convictions because it's a matter of life and death, right? And we live in a culture that doesn't value strong theolo- uh, theological convictions. Remember, we live in a culture that has created a very undemand, a radically undemanding God. When the truth is our God is extremely demanding. How demanding is our God? You tell me. It's an easy answer. He's so demanding that his own son had to come and die for our sins. That's how demanding our God is. And our God is so demanding that he says, either Christ dies for your sins or you will be paying for your own sins for all of eternity. And we say, that's hateful. That's hate speech. That's that we get accused of that. Oh, really? To tell someone to get out of a burning building, that's hate speech. Many times they say, no, I'm comfortable here. It's nice and warm. (laughs) Right? It's hard. It's hard to convince people that they're in danger. And it's even harder to convince people that they are in eternal spiritual danger if we remove the wrath of God from the gospel message. 
Well, God is a God of love. Being wrathful and vengeance and judgment, judgmental, that doesn't sound like a loving God. Interesting thing about God. All of his attributes are equally balanced. One attribute doesn't take away from another. Now, for you and me, it's different, isn't it? Because we would say, and I'm not doing this because I'm not this brave. If, and don't be writing things down, I'm watching. If I said, write down three adjectives that you would use to describe me. Besides beautiful, talented, intelligent. Those three we know. You don't want those. Or, if you look to the person next to you. And I would say, write down three attributes to describe, or adjectives, attributes to describe the person next to you. See, we do that, don't we? She would never write down, he's very patient. Would you ever write that down? Not in a million years. I'm not patient. Is humor an attribute? Not really. Is it? Yeah, God has a sense of humor. That's right. Okay. Habakkuk shows some humor. Anyway, rabbit trail. Uh we have a lot of some attributes, a little of others, and some of us have none of certain attributes, like patience. I don't have time for patience. But God has all of his attributes in infinite amount, equally balanced. The fact that God is a God of wrath does not make him less loving. And the fact that God is love doesn't make him less angry. There are only two people that are angry 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every week of eternity. God and Satan. It's a divine attribute. Today's Christian religion in America must have a therapeutic benefit. It's not a religion of sin, repentance, grace, service, prayer, suffering, gratitude. It's all about feeling good, feeling happy, feeling secure. Uh, It's a subjective well-being. I define what it's going to take to make me feel good. And my religion should be part of that. It's interesting. Is that the pursuit of your life? Think about that. That's a hard question. I don't want you to raise your hand or anything. But think about that. Is that a pursuit of your life to feel good about yourself? And I'm going to show you in a minute. I know you're thinking, what am I supposed to do? Feel horrible about myself? Look in the mirror and say, blah. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'll show you in a moment. I'll do this for you ahead of time. What are the two greatest commandments? The first and greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as much as you already love yourself. Right there is a biblical principle of self-image. Love God. Love others. And the third one you're really going to love. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. Woo! Love God. Love others. Deny yourself. That is a biblical self-image. But that's not what the world teaches, is it? What's deism? Have you heard that before? This is a philosophy that arose in the 1700s. And Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Many of our founding fathers were deists. Deism believes God exists, that he created the world, that he keeps things in order, that we get our morals from God. But God is far off, far away, not personally involved in our lives. He is not a personal God. 
which I don't know how well they, you know, deny the uh, inerrancy of Scripture. That's how they can think that, because the Bible is clear that God is particularly specifically involved in each life and even more so in the life of those who belong to him. He's a God that likes to keep a safe distance. Now, this brand of new faith that we have in our country. We see that we have a God who's not the God who thunders from the heavens nor serves as a judge. He's an undemanding deity interested in solving our problems and making us happy and making us feel good about ourselves. We already talked about this. Is true Christian faith undemanding? No, it's not. It is the opposite. It's so demanding that God sent his son to die for our sins and to call us to holiness. Here you go. Now I'm going to answer the question you've been thinking of. Well, Pastor, you're always talking about how uh, you're against the self-esteem movement and we shouldn't be seeking to feel good about ourselves and all. And, and I'm going to stand firm by that. I'm never going to budge from that. Those are not biblical principles. But one thing I could improve on is mentioning and teaching more than what should we be thinking about ourselves. A biblical self-image is, first of all, we see those two little words all throughout the New Testament, don't we? To the saints in Philippi who are in Christ. To the saints in Thessalonica who are in Christ. Uh, To the saints and beloved in Rome who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, that is the biggest difference in how you view yourself. What does it mean to be in Christ? That means you came to Christ for salvation. You placed your eternal soul in the work that he did in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And now you have been joined with him. You have been united with him. That's what it means when the scriptures say you are in Christ. I like Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul told the Corinthians, help me with the reference, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 maybe, that Christ died for us so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died for us. Being in Christ means I'm no longer sinfully preoccupied with myself, but I am totally and completely preoccupied with Christ. How can I serve him? How can I love him? How can I bring glory to him? When I go to school, when I go to work, who I date, how I spend my time on the Internet, the music I listen to, my entertainment choices, the words that come out of my mouth, my private thoughts. How can I bring glory to Christ? My life is consumed with it. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I want to encourage you, if if some of you are thinking, that's not me. I think that's a good thing that you realize that. Maybe you're not truly born again. Maybe you've just been Christianizing yourself. You know, there's a big difference. And I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, I mean, I ask Lisa, I don't wake up every morning. Whoo, 530 time to serve Lord. Uh, No. Some days I wake up in the morning and say, quit hogging all the blankets. What the heck is wrong with you? It's a constant battle, right? With the flesh, with the world, with the devil. But my heartbeat, my heartbeat, 
when I stop, when I get alone with the Lord and I just slow down or I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, as Paul said. I count all things as lost except the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, Paul said. It's what drives me. It's what I'm most passionate about. I still have to go to work. I still have to do the shopping. I still have to take care of the yard. I still have to do all those things. I have to go to school. But in those things, I know that I can bring glory to Christ. And that's my main purpose. It's my main purpose. We already said we love God. We love others. We deny ourselves. I couldn't resist. Say goodbye to self-preoccupation. You know, and it's on both extremes. Pursuing a high self-esteem or pursuing, uh, I've got to get to that point where I feel good about myself. And, And I hate to burst your bubble, but I'm telling you this because I love you and it's the truth. You will never, ever, 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 did I mention ever, ever, truly love yourself and like yourself. It's never going to happen. You're always going to fall short. Always. I, I hate you. I love you. I love every one of you, but you're imperfect. I am a little bit. You're more than me. Just kidding. Just making sure you're awake. It's a futile pursuit. Self-love, self-acceptance is a futile pursuit. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? Who can know it? It's a much more worthwhile pursuit to pursue God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to pursue Christ, to serve him, exalt him, love him, glorify him. Because the scriptures say, those who draw near to God, he will draw near to them. That is not a futile pursuit. The scriptures say, all, no one who calls on the name of the Lord will ever be disappointed. There's been a radical transformation of Christian theology and belief that's replaced the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of the self. Sin, wrath, justice are discarded as out of step with the times and unhelpful for self-actualization. We'll do part two of this sermon message next week, Lord willing. But I want you to look at these questions. Give yourself a self-exam. And this all came out, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, especially verse 16. And next week we're going to look at more detail. When he says the wrath of God has come upon them to the utmost, that they have filled up the measure of their sins. It's interesting. It says they've filled up the measure of their sins. That's saying that God has a limit. God has a limit. There does come a point when God says enough is enough. And then he deals with sin. But think about this question. Why do you exist? This is really an important question. And be honest with yourself. Do you exist for God? This is in your own thinking. Or does God exist for you? That's a really big question. Give me that. Give me this. I want that. Bless me, Lord, I pray. Give me what I think I need to make it through the day. I mean, when, when you go before the Lord, is it all about what he's going to do for you? Or do you praise and worship and extol and magnify him? Do you prefer serving or to be served? 
This is a tough one. This is a tough one for me. I mean, we all enjoy that to a certain extent, right? But our mindset. Here's the big one. And mom and dad, I want to encourage you to talk to your children about their theology. Do you realize that you are responsible before God for the theological training of your children? I'm not. The Sunday school teacher's not. The youth pastor's not. The scriptures say that dad particularly, and then mom, dad is held responsible first before the Lord for the theological training of the children, and then mom secondly. The church is here to support you and to reinforce you and to help you. And some of you are thinking, I can't talk to my kids about theology. I don't even know anything. It's time to get crack-a-lacking. Right? That's not an excuse. Can you articulate and define your theological convictions? Do you even have any? I shouldn't laugh. But that's like a sarcastic laugh. I mean, I mean, guess, there are many people who call themselves Christians. They don't have any theological convictions. Because we live in an age of relativism. Whatever is whatever. Whatever you believe is good. Whatever I believe is good. We don't need to worry about it. Whatever works for you. And so people don't have convictions. What do you think or how would you define? What do you know about creation, about man, about sin, grace, redemption, atonement, justification, sanctification, future events, heaven and hell? That's just a start. Can you articulate those terms? Can you put scripture with those terms? Do you believe that hell exists? Yes, yes or no? Ben does. Okay. And then, and this is for everyone, we say yes. Will you take me in your Bible and show me your biblical support for the existence of hell? That's, this is really important. What is the driving passion of your life? In other words, what do you live for? Well, how do I know what I live for? The best way to determine what you live for is what preoccupies your mind most of the time. Your private thoughts, what you're thinking on the most. Are you living for the glory of Christ or are you living to be happy? Are you living to feel good about yourself or to be successful or to be loved or to be accepted? Uh, those those are, are wrong goals for Christians. Those, those are the wrong goals for Christians. I see some of you writing. And are we ready? One more slide and then we can get to the crock pot for lunch. So. You should write this down sometime this week. Your answer to that first question. What does it mean to you to be a Christian? Your own beliefs. And then if they're wrong, we can fix them and correct them with the scriptures. But right now, as you sit here, if you had to write down the answer to that question, what does it mean to you that you are a Christian? Have you noticed that in our American culture, it's meaning less and less? I no longer ask someone if they're a Christian. Because most people will say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. But... I find out that they're really unsaved because they don't have the, the biblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian. That's the culture that we live in now. Does it mean to you that you're a good person or does it mean that you intentionally love Christ, obey his commands and witness for him? Tough things. Let's stand together. Tough things.
but uh, important questions. It was more of a topical message today, but I think it's important. Think about your own life this week. Meditate upon these questions I put on this outline for you. Look for what God says about his wrath and his judgment in the New Testament, especially. And then why is it important that we see God's wrath in the New Testament? It's a very important issue. And the other question I have for you there is take a look at the Passover from the book of Exodus. And then we follow it into the New Testament. and We see why is that so important? and How is that connected to the wrath of God? We can thank God and praise God that he is a wrathful God. And, you know, one of the main reasons the Bible tells us we can is because he is a patient God. One of the serious questions that my oldest son has been dealing with, and he asked me, he said, I don't understand. If God is a loving God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much evil? He goes, it just doesn't make sense. And I told him, I said, you don't understand. God is patient. He's waiting. He's giving humankind time because he wants more to be saved and brought into eternal life. Don't look at it as something God is not doing. He's not stopping evil. Look at it as something God is doing. He's being patient toward sinners. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the word this morning. I pray that it has an effect. I pray that it's valuable. I pray that we, more than anything, the reason I wanted to present this is that we as Christians would have an understanding of our world. Sometimes we get confused about what's going on and why people think the way they think and why things are happening in our culture and in churches and and other things that we don't understand. But as Christians, we should understand more than anybody. And we understand that the evil one is at work in the hearts and minds of people and that it's really all about autonomy, that we have to be religious people. We have to be people who worship because that's how we were created. But in our Autonomy and love of independence, we want to turn away from the demands of a holy, righteous God and fashion our own undemanding, affirming God who makes us feel good about ourselves. But, Father, help us to appreciate your love and your patience in the light of the truth that we deserve to be the objects of your wrath because we are sinners. And that that's our nature it's, it's not just the things we do. We, we commit sins because we're sinners. And Christ took our place. The scriptures call it propitiation. That he took your wrath so that we might have your favor. And we now have become the objects of your favor. Your children, your adopted ones. Your wrath has been diverted onto the person of Christ at his death on that cross so that we would not have to endure it. For eternity. So we're thankful and we praise you. And we leave here rejoicing for every good thing. In Jesus name. Amen.